This is the Meet Me at the Spot podcast, where we meet at the intersections of sexual health and the world around us. Each week, we will discuss sexual health current events, politics, social justice issues, and more. Get excited because it is time to start the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Meet Me at the Spot. My name is Holly, and we are going to switch it up a little bit this week. I was listening to some previous episodes and came to the conclusion that the information during this intro in current events has been depressing as fuck. And, And yes, I know things are not great in terms of policies and laws being passed, when we talk about abortion, LGBTQ plus rights, marriage rights, birth control, and also things like climate change, police brutality, and, and so many other issues. I'm going to post some updates on my Instagram this week for those who want to stay informed and up to date. This week, I want to focus my attention on some self-care. We can recognize that we exist in a shit show and also remind ourselves to care for one another and for ourselves. It is not selfish to step away from things that are bringing you anxiety. And it's actually very healthy to step away and give yourself a break in order to be your most helpful self. We always encourage people to come back to the work when they're ready, and it's acceptable to recognize when you need to focus your energy elsewhere. Self-care looks different for every person. For me, I like to take occasional social media breaks. I also uh, take a a weekly yoga class. I listen to podcasts. I watch trashy reality TV. I think one thing for me is I get so overwhelmed with all of like the fuckery kind of just happening all around us. And I am a fixer and a helper. And I always feel like I need to do all of the things all at one time. And the rational part of my brain knows that this is super impractical. And sometimes the practical part of my brain is really quiet. And I forget that I can't solve all of the problems of the world. I constantly have to remind myself to focus on one issue at a time and to work in the capacity that I have. So for example, I do not like making phone calls. So that is not an action item that I personally do or even like to do. I love going to protests and rallies, and so that is one way that I do work to advocate. There is no one way to advocate because I don't like making phone calls, but other people do, and those people might not like going to protests, but I do. This week, I'm going to task you all, myself included, with finding a way to incorporate self-care. 
I would love to hear what self-care means for you and start to create a list of ideas for folks to take advantage of. Feel free to email me, message me on Instagram. I think, um, as I'm kind of like saying this out loud, I think I'm going to create a poll uh, about this on Instagram so that um, folks can remain anonymous and also as a reminder to do it. So uh, go check that out. If you're not following me on Instagram, what are you doing? My handle's in the show notes, so make sure you're following me. This week, we are going to continue on our conversation about sex education in schools with a focus on school-based health clinics. If you aren't familiar with school-based health clinics, they offer medical, dental, mental, and vision care directly in schools. This allows for youth to get access to care where they spend most of their time and works to eliminate barriers such as transportation, being able to find a doctor that is accepting new patients, uh, need for childcare, or taking time off from work for a parent. School-based health clinics can provide secondary care if that person has health care already outside of school and can also provide primary care for those who do not. Services are provided to any student who has parental consent with very minimal or usually without any out-of-pocket costs. There is no one-size-fits-all model for school-based health clinics. Many are operated by hospital systems in the community or other healthcare systems. School-based health clinic staff work collaboratively with school nurses and are really not designed to replace them. Many school-based health clinics offer after-hour call lines, uh, telehealth options even, and the staff work with the person's existing services. So this is meant to be very collaborative internally, but also externally, where all of the systems are talking and working together, which is really, really helpful. School-based health clinics look and feel different from school to school, even sometimes within the same school district. So I worked in a large city school district where several of the high schools had a school-based health clinic. And that I, as a side note, thought it was very strange that not all of the schools had them, uh, especially since we would often see kids get transferred uh, to different schools within the school year. As a teacher who usually had to split time between multiple schools, I was very interested in how various school-based health clinics were run. The easiest way to accomplish this is to listen to the students and to ask them about their experiences. It is really vital that the school-based health clinic is run by folks that have a positive reputation within the community. So if it's run by a healthcare system or a hospital-based system, that system should already have an established positive reputation in the community before it tries to have a positive reputation within the schools. The staff need to be able to provide services in a way that are age-appropriate for young people. This is really different than providing services for adults. Many school-based health clinics also provide reproductive health services, such as 
being the place that students can access condoms, like we were talking about in last week's episode, and some are even able to prescribe birth control. Some school-based health clinics can even provide Nexplanon or IUD insertions, and this is really great so students can get access to highly effective birth control options where they may not have been able to get access to them outside of school. This also reduces a big barrier, uh, which is confidentiality. School-based health clinics have been around since the 1960s and have increased in numbers in the last two decades. When we look at data from the National School-Based Healthcare Census Report, which is conducted by the School-Based Health Alliance, in 2016 and 2017, we saw that there were 2,584 school-based health clinics that serve students and communities in 48 of 50 states and the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. The number of school-based health clinics has more than doubled since 1998. Currently, a little less than half, so 46% of school-based health clinics are in urban communities and 36 are in rural areas and about 18% are in suburban communities. School-based health centers were created due to a recognition that healthier students made better learners and that school-based health centers could work to address the unmet needs of the youth. This makes perfect sense when we really think about it, right? Healthy kids are more likely to learn better and have a better education. So school-based health centers have evolved to meet the changing health needs of youth and really work to provide a safety net for youth who are uninsured or underinsured or just who do not have regular access to health care. And this all sounds really great, but do school-based health centers actually produce positive outcomes? And the answer is, of course, they do. Their presence and their use is associated with improved health-related outcomes, such as increased preventative screenings for oral health, vision, substance use, and nutrition. We see an increase in vaccinations, an increased use of contraceptives, uh, access to mental and behavioral health services. We're seeing decreased asthma morbidity. Uh, we also see a decrease in emergency department use and hospital admissions. The presence of these uh, school-based health centers is also associated with improved student achievement outcomes, such as grade point averages and rates of grade promotion and suspension. It's also, we see an association with improved client experience of care and improved experiences of school life and feelings of connectedness to the learning environment for not only the students, but parents and school personnel as well. I know from experience, many parents or guardians may have some concerns about school-based health centers and the services they provide, specifically when we're talking about reproductive health services. No one is forcing a young person to get access to any services at a school-based health center, and that includes condoms or birth control. 
those of us who work in this field in varying capacities encourage young people to have conversations with the adults in their lives. And we encourage adults to have open and honest conversations with the youth in their lives. Young people should feel empowered to talk with a trusted adult about getting access to sexual health services. And the adults should feel honored and proud that their child is taking necessary steps toward their health and that they came to them for advice. That's huge. With all that being said, that's not the reality for a lot of homes. A young person may need reproductive services and their parents would not approve. So many times young people would say, I need to get on birth control, but my parents would kill me if they found out that I was on birth control. Now, that approval or disapproval may be perceived or actual, but we want to keep in mind that perception is reality. In New York State and several other states, minors, so people under the age of 18, can consent to their own reproductive health care without a parent or guardian. This allows them to get access to services without using parents' insurance. Again, I want to emphasize that we work to get young people in a place to have these conversations and recognize that it may pose a threat to their safety if they discuss this with a parent or guardian. In the show notes, I'm going to include a link about school-based health centers for parents that have some more information for those of you listening who are parents or who work with parents. I'm also going to include another resource from the APHA that dives into more detail around the benefits of school-based health centers. In summary, school staff can't perform miracles and they can't provide every service within the four walls of the classroom. School-based health centers are a great way to reduce disparities in healthcare access and in educational achievements. If your child's school does not have a school-based health center, I highly recommend getting together with family and members of your community and advocating for one. The word of the week this week is equity. Specifically, we're going to focus on health equity. The CDC defines health equity as the state in which everyone has a fair and just opportunity to attain their highest level of health. In order to achieve health equity, we have to first acknowledge the generational injustices that continue to impact health outcomes. Once we acknowledge that, then we can work to correct those injustices by making changes in systems and policies. As we know, many populations experience health disparities, including people from racial and ethnic minority groups, people with disabilities, women, people who are LGBTQ+, people with limited English proficiency, and many, many more. 
I've discussed some of these disparities in previous episodes. So go back and listen to those so that you can get more of an understanding. Yes, that was a plug to go listen to previous episodes. (laughs) These disparities need to be addressed at all levels. A lot of folks use equality and equity interchangeably, but they are different. I like to think of that image that many of you may be aware of where the people are looking over the fence at a baseball game. If you're not familiar, I'm posting it on my Instagram so you can see the image and understand the reference I'm about to make. The basic idea is that the fence is one height, but all of the people are varying heights. With no interventions, one person can see over the fence and nobody else can. When we apply an equality lens, everyone is given the same size box to stand on. This leads to some people being able to see over the fence and some people still are not able to. When we apply an equity lens, each person is given enough boxes to stand on to be able to see over the fence. So people who may be shorter are given two or three boxes to stand on where someone might need only one box to stand on, for example. When we put this into context of healthcare, when we treat every single person the same with the same treatments or prevention strategies, some people are going to benefit, but not everybody will. When we use an equity lens, each person is given treatment or prevention strategies that work best for them. We don't have this one-size-fits-all approach, but instead we have a tool belt of various strategies, and we find the one that works best for that individual in that moment in time. Now, we can take this one step further and apply a justice or a liberation lens to the image uh, of the baseball field. And this would look like removing the fence altogether so that everyone can see the baseball game and doesn't have to depend on ways to aid them in seeing it over the fence. When we think about this in healthcare, this would mean removing those barriers so that everyone has equal access to equal services and not just certain populations are able to access services. I really think this relates so well to our discussion this week on school-based health centers as they really work to remove a lot of these barriers to improve lives of young people now and will improve their lives into the future. As we wrap up this week, I want to remind folks to utilize the anonymous question box. This can help me see topics that you're interested in hearing about so I don't have to keep guessing every week and hoping that you love what I'm talking about. Also, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, there is a guest form link as well. All of these are in my show notes, and if you check out my Instagram, you will uh, see my link uh, for Linktree, and those links are in there as well. I would love, love, love to have you as a guest and hear about your passion and interest in reproductive health topics and topics that are related to reproductive health, which is 
pretty much every topic, to be honest. <laughs> um, I'm working with a few folks at this moment to have them on, and I'm so excited to learn from these folks, and I hope you are too. All resources from today's episode are in the show notes as always. And I will also include some great resources on my Instagram. So make sure you're following over there as well. Don't hesitate to reach out to me as I would love to hear from you. You can either email me at meetmeatthespotpodcast at gmail.com or message me on Instagram. Let's try to find one way to advocate this week for reproductive issues. Just, just one, one little thing. Your one thing is making a bigger difference than you think. And as a reminder, you are a badass for being an advocate. Until next week, bye! Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Make sure you're following me on Instagram, Meet Me at the Spot Podcast. Do you love the show and want to support the podcast? Well, check out the show notes for all the ways to support the work I do. All links related to today's episode can also be found in the show notes. Help others find this podcast by following me and leaving a review. And also spread the word on social media. See you next week when we meet at the spot.